yourself staring beyond the horizon of a hypothetical wondering what would be different if you just crossed that rhetorical Rubicon? Worried you're destined to stay on one side of the warrior path? Are you constantly asking yourself, what if I had done this or that differently, but lack the courage or will to cross that theoretical threshold? Well, friends, with Dr. Bray's dream cream, you no longer have to wonder what might have been. Our patented concoction of essential and effective essences, extracts, and emotions provides portents into possible predicaments, visions vital to victory, and glimpses into glorious getaways. Take the unease out of the unknown and see what could be with Dr. Bray's dream cream. Now, for the truly terrified, Dr. Bray is also offering Uranus Suppositional Suppositories. A longer-lasting, faster-acting, other-side-contacting alternative view of the universe's what-ifs. Warning! Uranus's Suppositional Suppositories may lead to unintended feelings of paranoia in men with children. Mapping the Zone listeners can get 15% off of their first order by using the code CHERRYCOKE when making their purchase. Dr. Bray's Dream Cream and Uranus Suppositional Suppositories. Don't fear the other side of the line. Take a look at all the possibilities, and you'll feel fine. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. Hi, I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We have been reading Pynchon's 1997 novel, Mason and Dixon, and have completed part two, America, which we will be covering today in its entirety. Uh, joining us is Brett Beeble, author of the forthcoming A Mason and Dixon Companion, which will be available through University of Georgia Press in 2024. Brett, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on again. It's great to great to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, for our, all of our uh, listeners, uh, Brett is is our um kind of weekly guide through the book um who you know if, if this is for some reason the first episode you're coming in on um brett basically reached out to us kind of around the time we started this one and um has been uh, an invaluable source of information uh, as we've gone along uh pointing out various facts and providing us with all kinds of uh additional historical context and other little bits of of trivia that have been tremendously helpful throughout this whole thing. So um, we really do appreciate everything that, that you've done for us, Brett. I, I, I really don't feel like a guide, Cody. I have to say, you, you all are the guides. I'm sort of like <laughs> adding random random tidbits here and there. I don't know which character that makes me most like. Yes. Ooh, that's I'm a, thinking Darby and Coke. I was going to say. more like Cherry Coke. <laughs> that, that kind of brings up a good question, yeah. Um, cherry Coke would be good. I think that's, yeah, that's probably an apt um, characterization. So um, I guess we'll just kind of... Maybe more like Uncle Ives, Ooh, I think. Just okay. like always chiming in and being like, that's not true. Shouting in from the back. You don't have the documents. <laughs> Where's your yeah, proof? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's probably it, really. Or, or even like, Ethelmer. 
Yeah. 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 I like to think that you're not uh, writing those in the tone of Uncle Ives. I hope, yeah. I hope not. No, certainly not. <laughs> That's not the intent. <laughs> not how they've come across at all. Good. Good. <laughs> So basically for, for this episode, kind of like we did for our um, part one episode with, with Brett, this will just be kind of a, a loose question and answer and discussion kind of thing. We've already gone through you know each of these sections of chapters and provided our, our summaries and our breakdowns and all of our thoughts on those. So this is more of just kind of a um, overarching discussion on, on everything in the book at this point. And um, we could certainly, you know, dip our toes into the the pool of part three a little bit. Um, so, uh, I guess to start, uh, Brett, I wanted to ask um, which which character that is not Mason and Dixon is your favorite, and why? Oh, that's a that's that's a great question. There's 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 quite a few. Um, I guess small characters. Um, I like. The, the werebeaver. I mean, just because that <laughs> section is so great. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I have a special affinity for the sort of mad characters, like you know, quote unquote mad mm-hmm. characters. Uh, Zhang and Powagast. Um, I think others fit that mode as well. Tox, Timothy Tox. Mm. Um, just the characters that are sort of by turns um, crazy, <laughs> uh, radical, prophetic. I, I, I think those characters really kind of ground the novel for me and they're the voices that stand out the most when I look back. So I think I, I'd probably go with that sort of subgenre of character okay. uh, rather than, than any one in particular. Maybe 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 Halligast is the one who stands out the most, just sort of the random uh, interjections in the middle of otherwise sort of rowdy scenes. It also seems too that like those characters who are somewhat mad like Halligast are I guess I'm thinking primarily of Zhang through the course of the latter half of the America section are the ones who kind of prompt the most thoughts from the reader beyond just sort of the action that's happening on the page. Like a lot of the thematic content on drawing lines and, um, you know, the difference between Eastern and Western philosophy and whether or not what Mason and Dixon are engaging in is, is inherently bad in some kind of a cosmic sense come from those characters that are that are a bit um that are a bit a bit crazy or a bit outside the the lines as far as the way that they think and, and talk compared to the other characters. So they also drive a lot of the action, I think, too, which makes them compelling. Yeah, and they usually I think they often show up in kind of rowdier moments yeah. too, just to sort of provide that counterpoint. Um and, and I guess, you know, I also really like a character like uh Rasham, right? A super memorable side character. I really like when Pinchon takes the sort of characters who only show up and kind of fully, fully fleshes them out. Um, John Harland gets that treatment in his chapter. I think he all talks about that. Um, that's 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 a really cool kind of Pinchon tactic. And Jonas Everybeat has the best names. <laughs> so all of them, Cody. I guess a long way of saying yeah, all yeah. of them. I mean, it's, I think it's easier. There's, there's not the uh, what is it like four hundred something that are in Gravity's Rainbow. It's, it's a little pared down from that. Even Against the Day has a lot more. So it's yeah, it's a, I think a little bit easier to keep track of everybody um, who kind of comes in and out through this story. Did you, Brett, have a uh, particular chapter or set of chapters in 
in part two specifically um, that really stood out to you the most? Yeah, I think the fun chapters that, that you all addressed, you know, the, the tree felling race um, is, a, is a personal favorite. Uh, I, I also love, I think it's, it's 59, it's the Tom Hines, Captain Wheat chapter mostly for a companion specific reason, which is just finding the sort of notes of, you know, upon which it's based. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And, and being able, yeah. And being able to go and be, you know, there's like a, wow, he had, I, I'm sure he was looking at this exact document, probably in physical form and not digital form as <laughs> I was, but I mean, that was, that's quite a, a rush. And, you know, in that, that document, if you read all of those sections, there's like this wrangling back and forth where, Tom Hines says, no, he didn't actually say that, even though earlier it had been reported that um, Shelby did say some specific phrase or charged five shillings for Tom and Catherine to use the bed. Uh, and, and Ives addresses that in that section. Um, and so just that was a that was a great moment while writing the companion where it felt like this is cool. Like, hey, this is a cool thing <laughs> to discover. Um, so I think that chapter is always going to have uh, uh, be memorable for me. Yeah, that makes sense. That was one that, yeah, I, I remember um, I remember reading it the first time I read the book, which was late last year. And it kind of, I, I was really just reading the book to just kind of absorb what I could from it and then doing this, this deeper exploration into it and, and learning that, that backstory and, and the, just the fact that it was pretty much as presented on the page uh, is so wild. And you kind of forget that, you know, people we're still rowdy like that in, in this time period. Cause it's such a, you know, you're used to seeing that nowadays with, you know, our reality TV and, and Jerry Springer for the, you know, the, the longer ago days. Um, <laughs> so you don't really think that that's the kind of thing that happens in the 1760s, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's so sorted. The whole story is so sorted and, you know, funny, but also, also really dark. Yeah. Uh, and, and Pinchon just, is so good at combining tones, um, taking the reader in sort of different emotional directions in the same short burst of prose. Um, and so that, that chapter really has always stood out, I think. Yeah. I think that a lot of people would also say that 51 to 55 is certainly a set of standout chapters in this section. I mean, we took two episodes to talk about them. I was very curious for kind of your extended thoughts on 51 through 55 and how you think they relate to the, the greater work as a whole, you know, what, what Pinchon is doing with different frame narratives there and how we have these two different sort of procedural stories clashing in, in what may or may not be the real life events or not. I, you, you certainly added some interesting stuff in your email, but I'd be curious just for you to talk a bit more about your thoughts on 51 through 55. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I'm really interested in the character of Eliza Fields um, for for a lot of different reasons. In part because of trying to parse the relationship to the text, um, and obviously also just she's part of the sort of pastiche that Pinchon is doing, right? It's kind of parodying all these different kinds of narrative styles from 18th century writing. Um, but there's also something, you know, character based that I find interesting. I, I the in-between characters in Pinchon are the most interesting to me. Um, and she, she definitely fits that description, sort of taken from home, but escaped from the place where she was captive 
and kind of wandering about in this forever in-between space, which usually gets presented, I think, as a good thing in Pinchon. That's the famous McClintock's fear line from B, keep cool but care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't 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 go too far into political activism, um, but don't don't become a machine either. Uh, you know, uh, because there's violence on the one one end, or inevitable violence on the one end, and sort of unfeeling nothingness on the other. Um, and so that extended treatise of that character, the dreams of sort of the toll that that you have to there's there's a toll keeper. You know, do I go to this side or that side? That kind of longing for for a home, trying to find a home, in the in the process of actually finding mm-hmm. it. Um, I, I just think that's really fascinating and gives us sort of those characters that always pay close attention to because even though it seems like she's just sort of imported for for a variety of sort of parody reasons or frame reasons, I do think there's something like character there. I, I, there's never an answer in Pinchon, right? But she seems like the closest. There may be a hint at an answer uh, that finding some value in that sort of situation where you're neither a character, even in one story or the <laughs> other, <laughs> but, but in, in different stories at once um, is, is something that readers should pay attention to. That's the sort of like equipment for living, I guess, <laughs> that, that, that Pinchon gives me. Um, so those characters are always the ones who, who stand out. Um, I don't know if that makes, makes sense as a, as a reaction, but. I'm definitely drawn to to her character in, in, in that moment, as much as to the sort of like formally inventive stuff that Pinchon is doing. Yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. Uh, I was wondering if you had any specific theories as to as to why she she does dominate such important chapters to to the extent that she takes the frame, and yet uh, she just does disappear. You know, even Zhuja reappears later and she is not mentioned again is, uh, do you have any thoughts on that yeah i i i mean other than the, the comparison to to slop right who does the same thing although he's he was the character for much longer um I, i'm not i think it, it must have something to do with that sort of longing for she's not at home in this story anymore sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah right um and and, and and there's a everybody maybe sort of acknowledges that by the fact that she doesn't she doesn't reappear and even Mason says oh you know she doesn't look like Rebecca after all, right? Um, and, and then I think she's mostly gone after that, um, which I don't think means she's she's gone. I mean maybe she's sort of graduated from the text. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe trying to be too too happy about it because you know the book is is, is dark and very dark in other ways. Um, but I think there's there's something there. I don't know, maybe going to trace it out if I were going to write a. a a paper where there's a theory, it'd probably be something like that. Will if that if that makes if that adds up, you know, <laughs> I haven't I haven't traced out the thread fully yet, but I think there's there's got to be something there about yeah yeah so finding a home and so, something along the lines of she's intersecting with the story and comes back out. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's all you know the Peter Schmidt web pages uh, that um, have you have you all looked at those the the Swarthmore website he's just got kind of glosses on each episode. no i don't think I no have. i don't i'm not familiar okay yeah um it, it's he's got little glosses on each episode and an essay that i think i probably sent in one email um and and he sort of talks about the way that that section moves in and out of the main narrative and, and talks about it like a like either a transit 
uh, like the transit of Venus or like a like a vortex, right? Like a like a whirlpool that's kind of passing through and then moving on. Um, and I think those are interesting ways of looking at it um, as as well. So de definitely somebody who's flashing through main narratives. The the image of the transit speaks to me, I think, a little bit more than the the image of the, the vortex, just because I can picture it more clearly. That she's sort of flashing across the face of the narrative and then disappearing like Venus across the face of the sun. Um, so I think those two things maybe maybe tie it together on a big big metaphoric level, or at least that's how it seems in keeping with the the motifs of the novel so far. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check out those essays. Speaking of essays that you had sent in an email, you sent that excellent far invisible essay um, that I loved. But in the the email that you sent along with it, you had mentioned that you had attended a, a pinch on conference or sort of meeting, and that oh, there was yeah. a lot there was a lot of sort of, you know, ex-ministers or current ministers or the theology students who were there. I'm curious if you were, if you got any insight as far as what their attraction to Pinchon was and just sort of what they thoughts they shared with you while you were there. I know this is kind of anterior to Mason and Dixon, but I've wanted to ask you about it since that email. No, it, it's great. Yeah, it was mostly um, theology, not theology necessarily, but religious studies or theology um, yeah. students um, or grad students and you know, young young academics. Um, so I was on a panel with somebody who's talking about sort of the Gothic in Mason and Dixon. Um, and that was a, he was a religious, religious studies student in Scotland. Um, I mean, Mason and Dixon is so, has so many references to religion in early mm -hmm. America. Um, you know, you, I think, I think you had mentioned Kate last, just last episode about, is it okay to be a Luddite essay? framing a lot of Mason and Dixon. Um, and, and there's there's a lot of those, like the disappearance of religion and the entrance of science creates sort of a new system of worship, the, the deism stuff in the text, right? Trying to combine the two. And that's very much sort of the start of a rational scientific worldview. And Pinchon is so attuned to what that misses. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, that's, he's so Absolutely. good at, so good at figuring out what that shift let, leaves out, that I think there's an attraction, especially to, to people who, who care a lot about religion and how it's been articulated over the years, um, and, and maybe even people of, a, of, of faith, or at least of a certain kind of faith. Yeah, I think you're completely right about that. I, I think that potentially some of that was my attraction to, to his writing when I first started to like really get invested in it, but um, I don't think I, I, I was quite able to articulate why until you had sent that article. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, that was a great article. I was really glad to the, the person yeah. who sent it to me. And I think that's some of my, my attraction too. You know, I, was, I grew up Catholic, right. Um, and so that, that I have very, very vivid memories. Oh yes. <laughs> me too. <laughs> right. I, I was, you know, I think I could probably, I was right there. I grew up Catholic right. as well. So I, that stays with you. <laughs> We were well, we were talking about it with my wife the other day, and I was like, I think I can still say the Nicene Creed, you know. And, and we got pretty far, right? Uh, after years of not not attending mass, um, and so you know, I think maybe that's part of the the attraction for me as well. Just that that he's able to sort of provide a kind of thoughtfulness about mysticism and about religion and about spirituality um, in a in a way that also appreciates kind of secular art forms. So, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I was wondering uh, what Brett thought about the role of uh, Feng Shui in the book um, and the way mm. it kind of comes and goes throughout the book. And um, Zhang, you know, seems to bring it up a lot. Um, you know, I don't. I, I assume there's something in the companion probably about Feng Shui. Um, it, it does interest me for a few different reasons. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about a Chinese guy being in, in America around this time. Uh, I'm under the impression that the, you know, a lot of that the Chinese, the a lot more Chinese people immigrated in the 1800s and in the 1700s. So I do think that Zhang might be in yeah. some ways an anachronism. But um, I just I really like all the stuff about feng shui, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and I agree with your sense of of Zhang's role in the text, right? And a lot of the immigration is happening from, you know, on the West Coast, right? As opposed to the East Coast where we are. Um, I, I'm, I've, the books kind of uses the, the meridians pun, right? Like the, the lines of, of longitude uh, are called meridians. And that's the sort of term in feng shui, right? For the sort of channels along which energy transfer, energy travels in the body. Uh, and so I think there's definitely that comparison, right? Like Mason and Dixon are marking this. Zhang calls it a scar mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> across across the land. And, and it's like it's it's a conduit of force, uh, as Emerson always talks about those straight lines as conduits of force, but a different kind of force than than, than naturally sort of flows there. Right. It's this kind of created artificial force um and so there's a there's a tension there right and i think it also connects to the sort of like mason's experience in the cave right where he's sort of sort of for the first time appreciating earth's natural energy as opposed to looking at the stars um so there's 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 that as well that kind of pinch-ons maybe need to put in some sort of naturalist um sensibility to counterbalance this this machinery of enlightenment science and also as a way to sort of under i mean my initial impression of the mason and dixon line was always like even even after reading the novel the first time is like what a scientific achievement Mm -hmm. yeah right Right? to draw these lines and to get within this really small area is incredible and so pinchon's you know use of horoscope to sort of legitimize other ways of thinking about things um and he always is so carefully balanced without necessarily exoticizing those things too much um, to be able to make people ask those questions without kind of trading on them, I think, in a shallow way. Um, so I'm not sure I, I have a sense of his exact purpose, but I think it's, I think it's certainly about presenting that alternate way of, of seeing things, right, which probably seems strange to most Western people yeah. at first. Right. Or at least in 1997, right, where, where the world is a lot less globalized. Yeah, that's. So yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's a good point too, because I th- I think something that I've I've realized in especially in in this book, but really in in most of his work is that there there always is a really um well-crafted balance when when comparing the scientific and the non-scientific in that he's not there, there's always i guess a kind of an air of respect for the, the the things that are non-scientific that usually you know things like feng shui and and acupuncture and a lot of those kind of eastern philosophic philosophies and medicines 
are you know generally kind of dismissed and and you know categorized as this you know wacky um pseudoscience kind of thing and i think he he does a really good job of presenting it as you know i'm not saying that this is you know that it it's doing what it claims to do or that it's you know there there is any science behind it but it is worth at least thinking about and and at least you know considering it and and approaching it from a different way and and you know sharing a kind of respect for it even if you don't agree with what its philosophy is it's at least doing something for someone and you know until it crosses the line of actually i think hurting someone or or you know getting them to a point where they are misusing it or or you know avoiding other things that could help them better um i I think it you know those kind of things are always worth looking into and at least worth exploring and and i like the fact that he presents them in that way rather than just having a sort of dismissive tone with them for sure for sure and for me it's it's the respect is achieved almost by just the way he asks the reader to acknowledge that there is another system that Mm -hmm. exists Mm -hmm. (laughs) right because i think a lot of readers might come to something like you know might come to pinch on thinking that science science is the only system (laughs) right Right? um and in gravity's rainbow in gravity's rainbow the end of that system is just like mass death and extermination right Right? um like that's 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 the end of the line for that and so like pinch on is kind of saying it seemed saying to me or i was reading the sort of saying like hey these other systems exist and they've actually worked pretty well for a really long time uh you know i have a friend who's generally a very rational, you know, scientifically minded person. Um, but, you know, she did acupuncture treatments when she was going through cancer treatment, right? Um, and, and when I would talk to her about this, you know, she would say, like, you can't even compare Western medicine and, and traditional Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. right? Um, and she didn't mean, like, Western medicine is better. She just meant, like, they're totally right. different ways of looking at right. the world. Um, and... And and Pinchon, I think, does a really good job of tapping into that and making people realize that in a way that isn't that isn't comparative. Yeah. You know, like like when she said that, it was like it was not a comparative statement. And that's the same sort of feeling I get from from Pinchon. Right? Is that these things aren't necessarily being compared. They're they're offset and sort of working in the same in the same arena um, and kind of always flowing in and out of each other in certain ways. Playing off against mm-hmm. each other. Achieving different goals. Which is a tension that he pretty cleverly illustrates in the America section when uh, Zhang is talking to, I believe it was Mason, about the fact that their their degrees for a circle changed, and now it's it's only 360 degrees, and it's the same thing as you know the the Western world losing its 11 days of time, and yet either would refuse to acknowledge the other in some sort of you know begrudging difference there. So I think. It, that's that's a tension that he also is pretty cleverly able to illustrate to his reader, you know, exactly what your your friend is talking about with, with the difference between Eastern and Western medicine. He seems to intuitively understand that those things are, are different and not that one is better or worse than the other, but that they, they both do their own things. And yeah, I, I appreciate the acknowledgement in a lot of his works that technology is is good, but also to your point, it leads to mass death and destruction yeah. um, if, if carried out to its logical conclusion. And that these these old systems of belief and these old systems of, of living wouldn't have lasted as long as they did if there wasn't something to them that 
it, it's it's a it's an acknowledgement of both that really requires people to to be able to I think live in the way that that Thomas Pinchon, if he's prescribing anything, which I don't think he necessarily is, is, is saying is the best way to go f- go forth, or at least an acceptance of limitation that there there shouldn't just be unchecked innovation or technology or or modernity. Yeah, and I'm I'm also thinking of that scene where you know Mason Mason and Dixon is right after they visit the sort of giant vegetables, right, and they're talking to to the the indigenous folks who are are with them along the line, and and one of them says, you know, like we dreamed you, but you didn't dream mm-hmm. us, right? It's almost like it's almost like it's almost like he's saying you don't even have the vocabulary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to to understand what what how we how we mm-hmm. the world, yeah. right? And so I think that that definitely captures what's part of what is going on there and part of what's powerful about it i think is that pinchon has a unique way of getting a lot of different kinds of readers to not not understand the vocabulary completely but at least acknowledge that that there's some different sort of way out there yeah and i i I think to circle back to uh the is it okay to be a luddite um article that he wrote I, i i think you know i never really considered its connection to this book when i read it um, and I've read it a few times and I, I reread it again yesterday, um, with, with this book firmly in mind as I was doing so. And, and the connections throughout it are, are way, way more apparent than I ever really had, had caught onto. And, yep. um, it, it really, if you, anyone listening, if you have not read that article, um, please go do it. It is a very, very well done article. Uh, it explores a lot of, of interesting Thoughts on the 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 state of technology at the time. I think it was written in '84, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, yeah it, it basically is just kind of an examination of you know here's where we are with technology, here's where it could potentially go, and he really truly is is pretty on track with a lot of it. Uh, almost 40 years later, there's a there's a great line where he says something like, "When the curves of robotics and and computing." And engineering all converge. Yeah, right at the right? end. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know, it's hard not to see sort of large language models as part of that advances in medical technology for sure. For sure, I think I don't know if it was Harold Bloom or somebody somebody else, but they they called Harold Bloom like loves Mason and Dixon. It's like one of his favorite books of all time. Um, but I think he said that it's the book is a seven hundred and seventy three page extension of Is It Okay to Be Lenny? So <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly on yeah. it, right? I can definitely see that. And I think that, like, to a certain extent, even beyond Mason and Dixon, I think Is It Okay to Be a Luddite contains a lot of very, inform- very like, important set dressing for how Pinchon uses technology in a lot of his books, not just in Gravity's Rainbow or Mason and Dixon, mm-hmm. but also, you know, in, in uh, The Paranoia of Inherent Vice and how that book ends with with um doc you know looking at darpanet for the first time and, and yeah. understanding what that's going to to kind of build into or all of the the uses of technology in um in bleeding edge certainly and and where those yeah. things things lead and how that begins to change the arc of humanity uh if, if it's brought out to its its most logical conclusion i that that kind of stuff is is all over his work and it seemed to have continued to take on more and more importance after like in the books he wrote after he wrote that article um like it's certainly present in his earlier work but it seems like something in him articulated those thoughts in the is it okay to be a luddite and then sort of carried out through all of the work that he would write afterwards 
it, it, yeah, it seems really important to, to note that the question, or the title, the title question of the essay is not, is Luddism good? It's not, is technology bad? The question is, is it okay to be a Luddite? It's <laughs> not framing it as a matter of two natural and obvious conclusions, one of which wins out which is, is a recurring thing throughout every single one of his books, most notably Single Up All Lines. And I think that when you look at that in the context of Mason and Dixon, you have all of this binary thinking being subverted in every which way, whether it's the fact that you have Mason and Dixon. Mason could be framed as some sort of conservative in the British sense at that point in time, and uh, Dixon as a progressive and then Zhang comes up and says, hey, you're all wrong. There, There is no right between you two. You're both getting it wrong in the fundamental sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, is it okay to be a Luddite refocuses the question of is technology good or bad to what is the, what is the real issue here? Is the issue technology or is the issue what are we doing with it? And mm -hmm. the, the whole book and... Well, just the entirety of Mason and Dixon, and to a lesser extent that essay, you can frame it as a, a really intense argument against binary thinking in many ways. That's such a great, such a great point. Well, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about the title that way, but certainly, yeah, it almost seems like the title is asking, like, is it even, do we even consider these the people who proclaim to be Luddites human? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, is, is that perspective like and 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 so it's yeah. There's a lot of layers to it, of course, because it's, it's pinch on, right? Um, but uh, that you know, provocative way of putting it. Do we even make space for this way of thinking anymore? And if not, what does that mean? Uh, it's great. That's a great way of putting it. Will thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I don't. I'm not very good at writing down anything, let alone questions. <laughs> so I'm just going to compile random thoughts and throw them at you throughout this. That was a good one. So, keep it kind of going back to your your statement about how this this book uh, was was one of Harold Bloom's favorite books, and then it was essentially a seven hundred page extension of of that essay. What would you say, like, if the book was to have a central premise or theme, would you agree with Harold Bloom on that? That it is it is it has something to do with with technology and modernity and the doing away of of the old, I'll say, gods and and ways of living, or would you say there's something else that that Pinchon is using this book to really articulate to his his reader? What what's your opinion on that? It's a good question. Um, I think I'm compelled by by Bloom's argument. I think on the other hand, this also seems to me like the part that I recognize the most when I'm reading it, and especially like rereading it and rereading it, is sort of the American DNA. Like it's such a foundational mm -hmm. American mm -hmm. novel. I mean, it's a great American novel, but also a foundational American novel, just that, that notion of how does America define itself uh, and, and what are the consequences of that definition from this moment on, you know, up to 90, 1997 and up to today. And I think that's where the book is the most prescient for me. I think um, just its anticipation of sort of binary thinking and how binary thinking drives politics, um, you know, it's right from the line of sort of a nation bickering itself into fragments, <laughs> right? Which which happens on what the second page, mm -hmm. um, and 
and you know who can't who can't relate to that? I mean, obviously, in 1997, you know, you're six months away from impeachment. You know, you've got massively polarized mm-hmm. politics then. It's yep. even worse now. Um, that that sense feels like the central. If I were going to say it like assign a book and say this is why this book is relevant, I mean, that's that's that would be where I would start. So you don't think it's because of its scathing argument in favor of marijuana legalization? <laughs> that fits, right? Sure. He won that one, right? We we have we have Pinchon. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm I'm coming from Illinois, so I, I guess that's what I mean when I say legal. <laughs> yeah, every state that's legalized this has had someone waving this book on the steps of their state house. That's exactly that's what did it. They're like, oh look, he's got the right book. We're gonna we're gonna do it. We have no choice. All the people walking around with ampersand shirts. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the state fair preacher is talking about giant yeah. vegetables. <laughs> so this is something we've already kind of touched on a little bit here and there. Um this it does I'm gonna say something that I, I meant to bring up last week actually, um that was inspired by something Kate said two weeks ago. Um Kate linked the the uh the giant vegetable part um in i think 66 to 70 with uh the promised land from the bible one thing that i've noticed in this book is that the further away from civilization we get uh the more kind of mystical things get you know we get a lot more kabbalah references a lot more references to as above so below um the old testament references seem to kind of get more and more numerous um I'm not sure if I really have a question here. I don't. I guess I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, Brett. With you know, like the, like the movement away from civilization, and then kind of how that seems to, um, it seems to kind of be linked to America as, um, as the promised land. Like the further away from civilization they get, the more, the more promised land esque things get. I think my thoughts are yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think, I, I guess the, what I would add is that there's also like a weird element of return. Like the farther away they get, Dixon especially is, is reminded of these stories from, from home. And, and really the whole line talks about these stories from home. And there's like Durham for folklore sprinkled throughout the text, right? So it's almost like a reminder of some some way of thinking that he's, that he's forgotten, um, which... I guess on a surface level, maybe it cuts against the promised land idea, but I think part of the idea is that, you know, the dance of the hunt for Christ, right? Like everybody's always searching for the promised land mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, they, and they never find it, um, but they always sort of can open up this new space and, and maybe feel like they found it. Um, so, or feel like there's, oh, it'll be here. Can't, it wasn't here. Maybe it'll be there. So I, I think maybe it's part of that, if, if that, we can maybe connect those two things. Yes, they get they get closer to mysticism the further away they get. They also get reminded of sort of the fear, and the fear gives them this desire to civilize. And there's that that great passage where we go all the way to air travel, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just just talking about the the, the line of linear development. Um, and then you know maybe maybe we can fly to that place, right? Maybe it's on the moon. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I think I think that I think that's absolutely right. I guess is the short way of saying it. Yeah, I think it because it it 
I remember earlier in in part two, or not earlier, I think it was like midway through, where they were talking about uh, how America was supposed to be sort of an Eden. And so I, I guess you could kind of back it up and look at it as, you know, the the deeper they get, or the, the further west they go, they're, they're getting closer to touching that sort of Edenic area that hasn't been uh, corrupted yet. And so maybe that's kind of, you know, it's, it's a way of kind of, you know, inhabiting them for a moment and, and giving them a, a sort of feeling of, of touching that, that unknown and that, that mystic um, sort of paradise that could be, but can't because of what is essentially going to happen as, as the line or as civilization moves that way. Absolutely. And I think, I think you all did a great job talking about the, the Vinland saga and I haven't, haven't got to the ice shirt yet. I'll get to there. I'll get there eventually. I feel like I had to, to mention that in case people are playing like a drinking game <laughs> podcast every time the ice shirt gets mentioned. <laughs> um, but like, you know, that, that's, that's definitely provides a different dark perspective on the American, right? That's a really super dark story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it, it, it makes you the promised land on one hand and also a cursed land on the mm-hmm. other, right? Um, the, the narrator, Cherry Coke or, you know, that sort of ambiguous authorial presence talks about Gloucester as, as a paradise, right? Before those millers came and wrecked it all, mm-hmm. right? Mason, Mason's constantly thinking about that. So I think that cycle of, of promised land into corruption um, recurs and recurs and recurs throughout, throughout the text. Um, and, you know, the last chapter of this section right playing on our desire to have them continue mm-hmm. this thing like as you all said last week even though even though we we know it's it's probably bad yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe more than probably right maybe yeah, almost yeah. certainly um yeah uh so one of the, one of the things that as with all pinch on novels really um one of the the themes that that comes up is is paranoia and in this case we we get a lot of glimpses into uh, Mason and Dixon and their concern that they are essentially pawns um, in, in a in a larger game that they have no control over where they're going and what they're doing and that this is all sort of you know there's mentions of predestination and and whether or not they have any control over their own fates. Um, I mean, obviously, all of that is is pretty well laid out in the book. Um, what I'm curious about is having the the kind of historical background that you have with it having gone through mason's journal and done this companion do you do you get the sense that that would have been a a real sense of of paranoia that they that they would have had the the actual mason and dixon not the mason and dixon in our book it's it's a good question i i, I unknowable right um i suppose i suppose the the thing that i will say that i i I do believe, and again, this is just this is just, this is my opinion from you know reading the journal and kind of browsing Pinjon's source material. I do think that Mason knows who's going to be seeing this journal, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And and that 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 influences what he writes in the journal, um, just as just as everything we write in an email to our boss. Yeah, yeah. Keeping right. it to the facts it, it and, is, and not going off on yeah. wild tangents. Yeah. Is in some sense a performance. So, you know, I certainly think he's, he's at least some part of him is performing in that 
in that document. And sometimes he's performing the role of dutiful astronomer and, and sometimes something else. And maybe sometimes the performance slips, right? Like that description of the cave. Um, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the real sort of unfiltered, unadulterated Mason. Um, and I guess in a way that's that's paranoid. Right? <laughs> You're worried about the purposes someone will someone will, will use this for. Um, so I think I think that's the part where I would say there's a if there's a kernel of truth to the to the portrayal. It's it's that. And I and I do think that the 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 real Jeremiah Dixon and the real Charles Mason were. were certainly concerned about about legacy i think everybody is yeah right? especially when you're performing this kind of this kind of work i think mason in particular because this is a guy who ran with the inner circle of the royal society and and you know he's was you know early career assistant to the astronomer royal mm -hmm. you know and and he doesn't he doesn't even have an frs after his name right he's not ever named a fellow of the royal society um so you have somebody who is clearly a gifted scientist who clearly has been around the right people who has this sort of honor or at least what i think you would have seen as an honor denied him uh, you know i think that, that must have created some dissonance within this historical person um, and pinchon certainly layers that out for us yeah I, I kind of and i got that impression too from you know when i finally started going through the uh, Mason's journal while I was reading this, which, you know, again, thank you for sending that over. Cause it really adds a whole new layer to, uh, to reading the book, but specifically that, that mention of the cave is so almost out of left field in, in, in the sense that it's just not, it doesn't fit with the rest of what's been happening in the journal. It's all been so just matter of fact, you know, here are my, my results from my measurements. Here's what we did during the day. And then all of a sudden you get this really well-written short paragraph of, of a description of a cave. And then it just goes right back into measurements and, and, you know, daily notes and things of that nature. And so I, I can't help but think, you know, I think as we mentioned at that part in the book that, you know, Pinchon would obviously have, have glommed onto that and, and, you know, expanded it in the way he did. But just I think seeing it in the journal itself amid all the the calculations and the and the star charts and the notes and everything is just so interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean I love that about that's one of the things I love about this novel, this Pinchon novel in particular, is that with close study, like one of the fun parts about the companion was was getting a like I think a decent grasp of the constellation of source material that mm -hmm. Pinchon used, and and just like being able to see you know because by the end. You know, he was mentioning stuff, and and if I couldn't find it, you know, there was a certain pattern of fact where I would just say like, I bet he has a, I bet he has an archival source somewhere, yeah, <laughs> right, for for this, um, because he just does that so consistently throughout the text is takes stuff that's that's true and 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 embellishes it or fills in the gaps or or expands on it, and I think that's that's different than even Gravity's Rainbow, which is you know he definitely has a lot of historical source material and you know Byron the Bold and super famous section has a lot of historical truth to the kind of background of it. Um, but I think he just does that very, very consistently mm -hmm. in this text. And the, the constellation of material is maybe a little more manageable than the constellation of gravity's rainbow material. So I, I love that process of being able to be like, okay, I can imagine how a human being could get familiar enough with this research that they could pull on these facts basically at will and in, in a way that's this artistically sophisticated. It getting that close to the the constellation of source material, as you put it, 
change sort of the way that you you view Pinchon or or expand like your under your I guess thoughts of understanding about the man or his writing style? I, that's such an interesting process to I would imagine be a part of to get to see that kind of unfold as you were writing the companion. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's I don't want to say that it makes him more accessible, but but that that I can imagine how a human would do this. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, and, and that, that's, that's not something that I, I mean, when I read Gravity's Rainbow, I'm like, I have no idea how a human <laughs> could do this. And maybe that would change with like super close study. Um, but, but there's, there's that element of like helping to see this person as, as, as a person who was like living life while writing this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, that, and that doesn't sound profound at all, but I think, I think that's because when you realize it, it's, it's hard to have a vocabulary for it. She just, you just kind of, it just kind of hits you that, and then suddenly you understand him as a human and not as a name on these incredible books. Right? It's like incredibly accomplished literary career. Yeah. I'd imagine that's a, a really cool experience to, to kind of go through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just, and just finding the stuff. I mean, even the like very simple, stuff like um you know like the thing from from last week's episode right and i think i i i can't remember if i sent cody email but just like you know the, the driver's lash that um dixon uses uh in that in that very famous confrontation with the baltimore slave driver um you know at, at this pinchon conference uh, a guy named sean carswell who's just really cool writer pinchon scholar told me that you know he, he saw that at this museum and outside of Durham and apparently there is you know uh, an old Dixon family story about Jeremiah and the Baltimore slave driver right? <laughs> it's like it's like that sort of stuff right um and just just getting a sense that that this writer was was this close to the source material to be able to to be able to take all that and see how it fit together and, and in some ways it makes the book more approachable in other ways it makes it even more impressive to be able to do that and then articulate this this type of this level of vision with it. Yeah, and ju- I guess jumping off of the the t- subject of the paranoia, I guess with with all of that context that you now have, do you get the sense that Mason would have had actual concerns? The re- the real Mason, I suppose, uh, would have had actual concerns about Dixon's uh, loyalties, or do you think that was manufactured? I don't know. I mean, there's there's a class gap between them, so I I, I think the initial skepticism maybe that that Pinchon paints between them is grounded in reality beyond that uh, you know I'm not I'm not entirely sure um I think by the end and and, you know part three definitely is going to get into this like Mason seems like the real historical Charles Mason seems pissed at the Royal Society <laughs> um, for, for a bunch of different things. Um, but, you know, they, they apparently owed him some money or they promised him that if he did these tables, he would get money and he got half of it, but he didn't get the other half. And so there's all these letters of you know him and his family sort of asking, like, where's the money, man? Um, <laughs> where's the money, Lebowski? Um, but uh, so there's, there's all that. I mean, but so I think there's I, that, that stuff definitely seems right. The relationship between Mason and his father you know, uh, the, there's a detail about Mason's father's will that will show up in part three. That's true. Um, and it, 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 when you when when folks come across it, I think it'll be hard to believe. Um, but but 
that detail represents, I think, specific parts of their relationship that, that Pinchon was very attuned to. So I'm not sure about like Mason's skepticism of Dixon, but I think his attitude toward the Royal Society and his relationship with his father is definitely sort of inferred from, from very real research and, and very thorough appraisal set of documents. Okay, so so then I guess my, my next question is going to be that that does not inform then your uh, ludicrous assertion that Dixon has a decent French accent. <laughs> Here we go. I don't think I said he had a decent French accent. I said he's much more on the ball with the cover, mm-hmm. right? Where Mason's like forgetting. At least Dixon tries. Right. And that has nothing to do with your conclusion that, that Dixon was a Jesuit agent. <laughs> nothing. No, no. <laughs> I'm trying to decide how firm I should draw this pretend line in the sand. Yeah, that's probably far enough. <laughs> uh, forgive me if, if one of us asked this last time here on the show, but did, did Mason or Dixon really ever go on to do anything else of note after the drawing of the Mason and Dixon line, speaking from a historical perspective? Mason, uh, Mason, Mason did. Um, and, and, and they'll talk a little bit about it at part three. Uh, and, and, and they actually both, you know, observed the next, the next transit of Venus. Um, Dixon did more surveying work around, around his hometown. Um, you know, the line is definitely the biggest thing, but they're 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 involved up until their the later stages of their career, various scientific projects. Mason's actually, I think, withdrawing a little bit more. Um, so, uh, you know, he gets offered a prestigious post that Part Three will mention uh, that that he sort of doesn't doesn't want to do for a variety of reasons. Um, so, he, you know, they they both go observe a transit of Venus in different places. Um, so they they are they are um, they are doing stuff. Just just nothing. Nothing that will rise to the level of this uh, this much fame or, or infamy, I guess, depending on your perspective. Well, and that's uh, I, I, that's a good question, and I think it brings up. I think we talked about this on the last episode, or maybe the one before. But it, you know, reading this and and knowing every, and you know, not to say by any means that this is a you know a history book, but it is certainly. Um, filled with enough actual history and and through you know reading the book and and going you know through the pinch on wiki and and all the emails that you've sent over to us you know we i think you get a pretty good idea of the actual history that that occurred here but it it's really sad that the work they did that at the time was really and truly very important has really in a way kind of been relegated to the kind of you know, less known parts of history. And, you know, most people, when they think of the Mason and Dixon line, it's just, you know, it's the line that separates or separated the North and the South in the civil war. And it's, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of that too, up until pretty recently having, having read the book and, and, you know, taking the time to really learn more about it. And, you know, especially given that the, the novel explores the idea of, the importance of history and, and how history is preserved in its telling that, you know, they put so much work into this and it's essentially just kind of a, a B side in, in American history at this point. 
yeah, it's, uh, I always think of those lines on the highway, mm-hmm. you know, they're just highway Somebody lines, paints right? them. But somebody paints, somebody paints them, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and what they're doing is, is very, very, very complicated, difficult, difficult work. But I mean, that's a, that's a big part of the experience of the book is that realization of like, holy cow, these people, these people drew this, drew you know, this mm-hmm. line. And imagining how they do it is, is really, really powerful and how that experience might have changed them um, and how, how what they did gets changed by history, right? Which definitely ties into all the book's conversations about free will, and determinism, and all of those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, you're, I think you're right on. The last question I have written, I have other questions that are bouncing around in my head, but the last question I have actually written down in preparation for this. Um, given the number of, the, of connections between Pinchon's characters in his universe, um, you know, we, we, in this book we have uh, a Bodine that appears, uh, as you mentioned in, in uh, if not in last week's episode, but the week before. Uh, Ice the Ferryman is a, a distant relative of Gabriel Ice in Bleeding Edge. Uh, do you do you get the impression that these these works take place in a sort of alternate Earth in which we we have a sort of different presentation of how things are and and that all of these characters are used to kind of interconnect each of these stories? Personally, I think they're sort of just Easter eggs. Uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I agree. You know, I I don't think you're wrong. I I or yeah, I don't think that perspective would be wrong that they're that they're all connected. Um, and Pinchon is you know, constantly reassessing history, mm-hmm. um, and, and these characters are sort of his some of the mouthpieces through which he reassesses history. Um, I think for me, it, it sort of feels like uh, a nice in joke yeah. for your for your loyal yeah. readers, right? Part of the part of the performance of being Pinchon, <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, but you know, maybe maybe there is a, a deeper pers- purpose. I, it is fun. It's it's really fun to trace out the possible connections yeah. between you know, Fender Belly Bodine and Pig Bodine, for example. Um, and you know, I think I think that's a, a kind of fun side pursuit. Um, I and I if somebody wants to trace out like the theory that that they're all part of some interconnected universe, I would love <laughs> to read that essay. Like I, I would I don't have a lot of interest yeah. in writing it probably close to zero interest in writing it, but I would yeah. love to read it. So, so whoever, whoever wants to take it on, you it's, know, it's, yeah, something go. that came up. I saw it in one of the, in one of the read alongs on the subreddit. Someone brought that up. I don't remember which part it was in, but it got me thinking on it. And I, I just don't think there's any concrete evidence that, that really links them together. I think you're, you're more accurate in, in that they're just kind of Easter eggs and it's just these characters that pop in that are fun to think about their relation to, other characters in there. Um, I am interested in, I think we talked about this too before about reading the books chronologically as they, as they happen, like kind of on the timeline in which they happen and, and seeing how that would change, I guess, the perspective of reading all of them. That was another thing that came up on, on one of the reddits, I think. And I re- somebody said that they didn't recommend doing it and that it was kind of, there wasn't really enough of a thread to go through all of them that way. Um, so I don't know. Interesting thought experiment, I guess. But yeah, it's not something that I want to. I'm going to really pour a lot of time into. Just trying to put them in order in my head now. Okay. Yeah, it'll be interesting. 
think that's a cool project. If any listeners have time to do that, because I don't. <laughs> I don't think any of us do. I would be interested to hear how that goes. Are you not going to read any of these books another time, Cody? Oh, I absolutely will read them more times. <laughs> I don't know that I'll... I, I don't think there's a... I don't think it's like a Dark Tower thing where it's this, you know, alternate America that has connections through. Obviously, I mean, Pinchon wrote himself into it in a not as not as as uh, blatantly as King did, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it's the the meta is there, I guess. Hard part with the hard part with it would be if I'm getting the order right in my head that that would be really like. I think Mason Dixon against the day, Gravity's Rainbow, and Dean are the probably the four artist books yeah yeah you'd be really front-loading your labor yeah for different reasons yeah yeah and then and then you know you get to the the other and then it'd be what inherent vice probably um so yeah i mean it would be it would be an uneven experience in all ways but yeah technology (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know yeah, I've always interpreted it more as kind of a spoof on the idea of stock characters than any sort of timeline jiggering. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, I mean, Pinchon's always... I feel like almost every character, you know, is, is a spoof on, on, on stock yeah. characters in, yeah. in certain ways, right? <laughs> or a lot of the heroes anyway, but, but those, those, those ones especially. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, he spends so much time building duplicates of every character just for the sake of tearing them down and pointing out differences and you know in in this particular case like pig bodine okay who is this guy who keeps popping up he's just kind of self-centered and a (laughs) navy man okay that's a character i guess yeah and he has a very distinctive laugh yes yeah yeah well i'll jump into my Weird questions that have been bouncing around in my in my brain um, <laughs> for the last little while. Uh, I want to start with with if we were to have the the hypothetical wrestling match that almost happened between Zhang and the Wolf of Jesus, who would win that match? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to bet against uh, the mm-hmm. Jesuit, right? Doesn't doesn't, doesn't he? I mean, just yeah, yeah. yeah, just just based on brutality alone and the propensity to probably be be armed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. So I would, I would, yeah. I think, and I think that sort of industrialized, to the extent that he represents, kind of wanting to draw straight lines and colonize, essentially, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that's a big part of the book, right? Like that that forces a steamroller. That that no no character can really turn around and, and the best bet is instilling sort of small little bits of resistance to it. Um, so yeah, yeah. A, a funny question, but maybe a sad <laughs> sad conclusion. Sorry. Sorry everybody. <laughs> well kind of along those same lines, I guess I I'm wondering if you think that uh, the the conclusion of Zarpazzo's arc uh, constitutes uh, a a conspiracy theory that Pynchon is uh, positing. Oh, good question. That the Jesuits are in control of Disneyland. Yeah. Hmm? I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love that joke. It's, it's a great joke. Um, do I think, do I think he has some sort of meaning behind it? I'm not sure what I, what I think of the Jesuit presence in, in the text. Um, in part because I think there's there's definitely moments where Pinchon is like like poking and making fun and sort of sending up the very like cruel history and the, the well documented sort of history of violence um, you know, perpetuated by 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 Jesuits. On, on the other hand, there's also like you know Dixon says quite plainly at the end of chapter two like the, the quote unquote real conspiracy of of the novel, sure. right? Yeah. Which is which is that that there's slaves everywhere and nobody mm -hmm. knows. And so, you know, how often are the Jesuits invoked as sort of a red herring, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, so, I mean, typical Pinchon, right? It's, it's both and. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I sort of maybe wonder if that's like, was it Ponce de Leon? Yeah. Fountain of Youth. Maybe that's like a fountain of yeah. youth joke too, kind of looking around for the fountain of youth in the Florida Florida Pleasure Garden. <laughs> that seems like something that's possible to do. Um, which is yeah. what Disney yeah. is, right? Yeah. It's a fountain of, you know, yeah, fountain of youth. Um, and, and, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, that's a great yeah. connection. There you go. Yeah, We're not sponsored for... by Disneyland, so it's okay. We can... <laughs> 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 no, but I mean, I, that, I guess that is, you know, the more that we, more that, more that we talk about it, like it is right on, it's a joke, right? But it's right on with some of the big yeah. ideas in both both Mason Dixon and Gravity's Rainbow for sure. I hadn't thought of this old Wolfkinder connection, but that's definitely there. Yeah. yeah. The extent of, of the research and scholarship and, and putting together the companion and all the time that you spent reading through all of that material, what would you say is maybe not the most misunderstood, but if, if that is the easiest way to, to characterize your answer, then go for it, or or least written about or least commented on aspect of this book that you've come across through all of the time that you've spent sort of analyzing it and breaking it down? Does anything stand out as being particularly uncommented on or, or potentially misunderstood from a lot of people? I think, you know, it's such a, it's a very well-studied book. And so depending on the circles, just about, there's so many things that are commented on, right? It's, it's hard to find. It's hard to find one thing. It's like, nobody, nobody talks about this, but I think maybe something under, when I read it again, you know, for the companion, right, and was going through the companion, it's it's the complicity element, right, that seems so obvious to me uh, going through it very closely. That didn't seem obvious to me even like the second, third mm -hmm. time I'm reading the book, right, where it's like these guys are having fun. I don't know if that if that makes sense, but like how how complicit sure. are they in all of this? And I think I think that element does get talked about, um, but I think it's I mean the jacket copy copy of the, the hardcover edition says that they're they're unreflectively entangled in in crimes of demar demarcation, mm. which is like a pretty blatant yeah. way to put it yeah. <laughs> on, on the first <laughs> sentence of the jacket copy. So given how like forward that is, you know I think that element maybe doesn't get enough discussion and and and. You know, I'm and in part because we like these characters so much, right? Or we connect to them so much. Or Pynchon does such a good job of making them three dimensional. They're maybe his most three dimensional characters in all his all his work. So I think it's it's hard to be like these are bad guys. And, and I'm not even saying that necessarily, but just that like that notion of 
can they actually do anything to stop this? Are they doing enough? Um, that element feels to me very important to a discussion of the novel. Like, what role do they play in mm -hmm. the evils of this line that, that Pinchon is, is very much playing out? Because I wonder, I mean, I, I wonder if you all feel that. I mean, do you all feel like when you're reading it, do you, does the complicity stand out or is it more... Well, I think, I think funny enough, almost perhaps our podcast has fallen into the exact trap you're talking about of, of all four of us really like these two characters and have spent time like getting to know them and analyzing the relationship. And certainly we've talked about the, the results and the effects of drawing a line, but I don't, I don't know if we've really stopped to consider what degree to which Mason and Dixon have some complicity over what, what happens. I think I, I, I had to pause and, and think there in response to in response to that answer because I think you you've touched on something that I don't think we necessarily have but probably should have over the course of of reading this middle section of the novel. Well, so my my thoughts on that subject, uh, in the in the broadest sense, I guess, boil down to kind of a, a tracking of their uh, waistlines and their their tendency towards leisureful activity as an indicator from the narrator how complicit they are being. That's something that I've started to pick up on in the last couple of chapters in this read-through. And I think that, yeah, that, that, that's how I kind of see it being described in the book in a more direct way than simple illusion. I will say that the jacket copy also says that the turns of their later lives are strange but redemptive. So maybe that's maybe that's worth keeping in mind for part three. Um, I mean, that's definitely a thesis that I was sort of thinking about as I was going through the book was was complicity versus redemption. Do they come to regret working on this line? Um, you know, what does that say about them if they regret it after the fact? Too late? Does that matter? Right? Um, you know that that and that, I think the confrontation with uh, with the, the Baltimore slave driver gets to this too. I, you know, I read an article that that asked a pointed question about whether on a practical level this was achieving achieving something worthwhile, right? Like it's a super cathartic moment, um, but, but what happens to the people who run away and do they get caught eventually? And does do, do the conditions actually become worse for them, right? Which I think is a uh, an important point to make because, you know, we're cheering Dixon on, of course, um, but, but, but there's layers to it. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's not a, it's not like one of those Tarantino mm -hmm. revenge dramas, right? <laughs> right? Like like where where wherever where they come in and I mean, and I quite like Inglorious Bastards, but after the second and third time that trick gets pulled, right? You know, <laughs> where where the you know the heroes come in and stop the historical atrocity with the reign of violence and, and everybody feels okay at the end. Like that's yeah. that's not yeah that. true. <laughs> I, I, I or, so I think that is what makes it more powerful, um, but also is, you know, that, and I, I read a great article about that, right? So it is talked about, um, but I think it's, it's maybe undernoted that goes back to Kate's. Yeah, that's a great point yeah. about that confrontation between Dixon and the slave driver, because really, to your point, it, it likely would have made circumstances worse for the slaves for having run away. It, it is a mm -hmm. moment of catharsis, but it is primarily a moment of catharsis for Dixon over you know, being upset that he's seen slavery everywhere and has 
has done nothing about it. It, it, it. There's something inherently selfish in that act as opposed to what a, a, a passing glance at the scene would potentially make you think that it is. Well, and at, at the same time, we have this contradiction in, uh, well, the, the, the attitudes that Pynchon has demonstrated throughout this book and others, that uh, in, in accordance with Dixon's, you know, Quaker upbringing, the, the Quakers are very much focused on the idea of voluntary participation and the idea of, you know, really the, the fundamental concepts that led to the anarchism uh, the, the philosophies of anarchism that, that dominated the, the turn of the 1900s. And in a way, Dixon throughout the entire book has been dragging his feet. He's been trying to do the little things. He's been trying to make people's lives better where he can. He's been trying to push back and fight against these, uh, these the objectively bad people, I guess, if you're going to put it that way. But he, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't affect anything. He isn't just, you know, sitting around doing nothing until it all builds up and explodes. Sure, he becomes more complicit as time goes on, and drawing of the line may be something which preserves slavery for so long that it doesn't matter how much he as an individual did during his lifetime. But it, it makes you wonder, reading it, are we supposed to follow in Dixon's steps regardless of that? Because is there an alternative? And clearly in the, the Quaker mindset, there isn't. And really, uh, I, think it, I think it's a tough nut to crack. It, it definitely is. And I, I think also, uh, you know, I, and I obviously can't speak for either of them, but yeah, as as the reader and seeing it seeing it all happen, yeah, the you know the whole uh, slave driver thing was you know as everyone's already mentioned, it was cathartic not only I think for Dixon but for the reader too to kind of have that release and and finally see something that seemed righteous occur. But I think also Mason and Dixon both probably realized that they you know while they were complicit, I mean they were never really I don't think explicitly condoning or allowing things to happen, but I think they also realized that the problem was bigger and more systemic than the two of them could do anything about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that Penchon gets into in his other books as well. Um, that the idea that, you know, one person, how much of a difference can they really truly make in, in when they're going up against, you know, something as big as the East India company or, you know, in, in the case of like against the day, you know, going up against the the vibes and the the capitalists that are starting to you know put their their foothold on on the map and and really start to dominate the 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 people that are living under them essentially. Yeah, and I think that's I mean that's a big part of this article that I was that I was talking about um, is just sort of that the space for individual resistance is very small um, in in life <laughs> and digital, <laughs> right um, and. And, and it's hard to, you know, you, I don't think you can untangle it, right? Dixon's horse in that section, I think his horse is named Rebel, right? And so he's, he's being a rebel in that moment. But, you know, that's also what they called mm -hmm. the Confederacy, right? Um, and which, which his drawing of this line has, will eventually manifest, 
right? Like bring into being. Now he doesn't know that at the time, but but he's got plenty of warning <laughs> that that this is like you're up to no good, man. And and he seems to realize it directly as well, right? It, it's and that's that's the hard part about Dixon. You know, Mason seems I don't know less less aware generally at most points throughout the text, um, or doesn't maybe accede to that idea of sort of like we're serving slaves in the same way that Dixon does. I think Dixon's maybe slave, but we're serving people who want to enshrine slavery, right? Um, Dixon maybe accedes to that a little bit more directly in the text. Um, so I think I, you know, we want to like him for that, but but does that also make him more complicit on some level that, that he's actually acknowledging this outright at the end of part two, right? Um, what does he do with that information? I guess we'll see, part three. Um, but there, there's all those layers to it that I think are really interesting. And that, that's, you know, along with this notion of America that, that I think Kate asked about earlier, like that, that notion of complicity just really makes the novel relevant for me because they're no, they're no different than, than all of us buying yeah. cheap shoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, you can't not, how do you not participate in the system? Um, you know, I live in America where I live in, you know, Midwestern Illinois and I can't take the train to work, right? Um, so I got, yeah. I got to fill up my car with gas and I, I got to do all these things. Um, and so how do we deal with that? Like that is one of the most powerful part of, parts of the novel for me is just kind of the reflections on that, on that question, that acknowledgement, I think that's there. And then, but not stopping at the acknowledgement, right? Like, I don't think Penn John's interested in like, these guys are bad because they did this bad thing. There's a lot of thoughtful rumination on whether whether they had the ability to resist, what they could have done, um, whether they can make up for it at some point, whether they can find redemption and friendship, right? It's, it's more about how they cope with that fact of guilt <laughs> than, than it necessarily is about, about complicity. So I, I, but I think it's an important conversation. One of the best parts of it, one of the most sophisticated and awesome parts of the book. Definitely, and it ties back to that McClintock Sphere quote, the keep cool but care as well as um, all of those all of those issues come back to uh, the, the conversation of the, the elect versus the preterite, right? It's a question of Mason and Dixon, are these privileged people in, as they walk through American society, they are hiring these people to cut a line onto, onto the earth. And yet they are genuinely passed over. They have no... They have no control over where they're going next. They have no control over what they support or what they stand against. They can, as far as they're concerned, they're, they're, they may or may not be wrong about it. It depends on how you feel personally. But, you know, they feel they can't do anything against that. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's that contradiction of being viewed as the people who are changing the world despite only being tools. We talked last time about the hypothetical filming of of this book and i'm I'm curious if uh obviously will wasn't here for that discussion so I, i'd like to get his thoughts on that as well um i i was thinking about this the other day and i think initially i'd have to go back and, and listen to that episode but i think initially i had said that it would only work if it was done as like a tv miniseries but i don't think I, I think what I've, the conclusion I've come to at this point, I don't that that idea hasn't changed. I think it would only work if 
it were not directed by a singular person. I think it would have to be done uh, by different directors, depending on the the section of the book that's being done. I can't think of any director that would be able to really capture everything about this as far as its its tone and its its themes and its and its really what would transfer over is as cinematic styles um so i think that's i i don't think i want it to exist as a tv series or a movie i don't think this is one of those things that could be done well enough to justify its existence but it's a fun kind of thought experiment i honestly do think that the the television series idea could work out and i do think that the structure of television with it like a different director every episode or a small uh, group of directors and writers that trade off uh, would be the best way to solve that issue. I think that a, a lot of this book is surreal, but it's not surreal in a way that is unfilmable. And the, you know, you're not ever going to have a perfect translation from one medium to another, but you could probably make something that gets the broader historical and uh, philosophical themes onto the screen in an effective and entertaining way. Coming so close to the end of it as we have now, I almost feel like Donald Glover would be a good pick for for turning this into a into mm. a TV series in particular. He clearly understands somewhat obscure history given some of the the references in Atlanta that he makes to you know, in just in just the openings of certain episodes, he also certainly has an eye for the surreal and a lot yeah. of the things that he involves himself in. And he's also got a great sense of humor. I, I feel like he would be able to really package together all of the elements of of this book into a into a series or a mini series or or whatever pretty well. That's a that's a good that's a good pick. I think I think one one I think. Like, I agree with Will. Like, I think you could do something really well that, forget how you put it, but captures sort of the philosophical weight of the book. Um, it's strange, though, because, like, it's hard for me to imagine a person turning into a beaver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a talking dog sort of fitting with how I would imagine this as a TV series, right? So, like, I mean, it's weird to think, but some of the ad adaptive choices might have to be to cut out like the more fun parts of the book, I guess, or the parts of the book that are. Uh, and and I, I mean, I don't know. That would be a, that would be a hard choice if, if I were a show a showrunner. I think as I'm thinking about it, that might be my course is to try to have the fun be between the characters as opposed to in the more absurd elements. Um, you know, that might be something. That anybody would have to consider that yeah. might be the way to make it to make it work right i don't know i don't know i think between anamorphs and homeward bound i think we have <laughs> plenty of precedent for these things sure i just I, man i don't know if, i don't know if i it'd be hard to make it coexist right with 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 mason and dixon having a serious conversation about you know the cape dutch right <laughs> right <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, think, I think that would be the hard part yeah, I think I think an important part of my what I'm envisioning is that everything would be shot in ultra wide angle lens. It would be very smoky all the time. Very um it would have to be obfuscated in some way. It could not be a, you know, modern premier television quality show in the the normal sense. It couldn't be crisp and digital. It would have to feel 
feel grainy on the analog way. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think, and I think we talked about this uh, the last time that this is, I, I think probably his most cinematic feeling book, um, especially with all of its, you know, natural landscapes and, and the, the sort of, um, just open feel that it has. I don't, I think maybe against the day you could probably almost make the same argument for it, but I think Mason and Dixon really just feels more cinematic than anything else he's written. I agree. I, I think Gravity's Rainbow might be a little more cinematic in some ways, um, but uh, it's also uh, much less <laughs> able to be made into anything. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, besides besides Mason Dixon being a period piece, it's it wouldn't it wouldn't be that hard to to film, you know, a, a movie about two guys being really good friends surveying a line. Uh, like I said, besides all the costumes and and stuff like that. Yeah, there was that Robert Redford movie about walking the Appalachian Trail. So clearly, Jeremiah just... Johnson. No. <laughs> no, a much worse movie. Are you talking okay. about an adaptation of Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods yep, that thank Robert Redford Okay, I haven't had? seen that. <laughs> that thank movie you. is so strange. I don't know why that movie exists. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I think that's the that's the way we we should make the movie or TV show or whatever. <laughs> I did not know this existed. I'm yep. looking, looking for yep. you for it now. Nick <laughs> Nolte? Yep. <laughs> it is about... Two middle-aged and or old men walking in a straight line for a long time. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I, mean... I think there's a lot of influence to be seen there is what I'm saying. Just Pinchon was just reading Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods just over and over and over <laughs> again. It's like, I gotta, I gotta really find a way to, to work this into my Spice own Spice it thing. up a little bit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know how to spice it up. I'll I'll make it a retelling of Mason and Dixon with very dense archival material. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to 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 give a why to read this book, Brett, from a standpoint of, you know, what why should you read this book? What 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 would you what would you tell people? I suppose it's a variation on on what we were talking about when we were talking about complicity. I think the book is a really powerful articulation of the modern experience, <laughs> the modern psychological experience. And I know that sounds weird considering it's a historical, you know, set in 1760, but that experience of being subject to all of these systems and presumably operating within them with a lot of agency, um, but, but without actually a lot of agency and, and how to cope with that. I, I think that's sort of the central fact of 21st century life. And, and the mm. book helps me deal with it and, and makes the 18th century come alive in such a way that, that it becomes a sort of human, fundamental human question, if that makes sense. Um, how, to, how to deal with all the things you don't, have, you don't have control over and how to deal with all the things you're complicit in on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the book's a really wonderful articulation of that problem. And, and it does it without being fatalistic, I think, or cynical. Uh, I think Gravity's Rainbow is maybe cynical, maybe cathartic. It's definitely angry. Uh, Mason and Dixon yeah. doesn't quite feel 
like it has the same level of bitterness. It feels gentler in its in its consideration of those questions, and I think that's that's why I would I would recommend it, and that's why I evangelize for it because I think it captures that feeling really well. That's a really good response to that. I, that's I think one of the things I've struggled with in telling people about what I'm doing with this show. <laughs> and, uh, and when they ask, you know, when I mentioned that I, I do a book podcast and, Oh, what are you reading? And I try to explain what Mason and Dixon is, or even who Thomas Pinchon is. Cause in all honesty, most of the people I interact with on a, on a regular basis are completely unaware of him at all. Um, and so when I try to explain that it's this, you know, historical novel that, uh, takes place in the 1760s and tra- traces the, the the mapping of that line, but is also written in the same sort of vernacular as that time. I lose them around that point. So I think maybe <laughs> I need to switch over and, and kind of give more of that kind of explanation for it. Maybe I can win some people over. Mm-hmm. I hope so. It's, I, everybody should read this book. And it's great. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't genuinely think Pinchon is, is for everyone. Um, but I do think this book is is a lot more accessible than than a lot of people consider it to be. I definitely think this book is is worth the effort for more different types of people <laughs> than 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 yeah. um, other pinch on efforts for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment certainly. As much as I love the the, tr- the truly insanely dense and beautiful prose that that is throughout the entire book, it it is a shame that it is so dense and alienating to the average person when they pick it up because it is not a challenging story per se. I mean, some of the things it touches on are challenging, but the actual you know, story makes sense. The actual story is very human and universal in many ways. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, for all the beauty, uh, it, the style makes it really inherently unpopular. Yeah. I think a lot of people see the first page and think that there's just too many apostrophes and capital letters and <laughs> just give up. Anybody is, if anybody is listening, skeptical, just, I don't know, get, get past the first 50 pages, you know? And if the language, if the language doesn't, you know, there's, there's so much time, so much to read and so little time in the world. But, but I, I do think that the language does become easier as, as you get used to it, right? So hopefully, hopefully. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is a dialect that all of, not all of us, but most people are familiar with. We're just not used to right. reading it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can get past that that translation issue, I guess, between written and spoken word, it, it becomes much easier. Yes. I guess my last question um, is, without diving too much into the, the actual events of it, um, I wanted to get your opinion, Brett, on, on the ending. Um, there's, there's not as much... Uh, you know, historical goings on that, that take place over the last four chapters, but there is a lot of story that goes on. Um, and I'm just curious, do you feel that by the end of, of this story uh, that we've reached a, a satisfying uh, narrative ending? I do. I do. I do. And I, I think in part it's because you get 
especially in the form of Mason, you get like he's not the same character at the beginning and end. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I think we can talk about what that that change means when folks get to the end and whether it's positive or negative or what. Um, but you know, that's there's great drama and movement, right, and character, and and I I feel that. Um, and, and I do think there's, there's, you know, there's quite a lot of historical stuff in the background of, of part three, just there's a lot of Royal Society politics in part three. Um, there's a lot of, true, there's a true. lot of talk about, um, you know, these experiments to measure the density of the earth. Um, and, you know, as soon as Mason and Dixon kind of finish their line, and even as they're, they're doing it, there's some speculation that it's off. And, it, and the actual historical line is off by about 800 feet in some places because of the influence of the Allegheny Mountains on their instruments. Um, and so that that kind of starts to come up in the in, the, in part three, um, and, and that thread gets kind of kind of carried through. Um, but Pinchon uses all that I think to make make character observations and give his character sort of a chance to um, react, especially Mason, especially Mason. And I think it's Dixon's been such a focal point throughout the text, and he maybe has his epiphanic moment at the end of episode two or part two. So I think that shift to Mason is well well realized, and a smart artistic choice. And I'll be curious to see what everybody thinks <laughs> when we get there. Um, this is not related to Mason and Dixon, but I was uh, curious about Brett's forthcoming uh, book of short stories, Gridlock. Um, looking at the summary of it online, it does kind of remind me of, of Pynchon, number one, uh, and number two, uh, J.G. Ballard, and uh, in particular, J.G. Ballard's novel, Concrete Island. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily have a question. I just kind of wanted to state that it looks really exciting, and I'm excited for it. It looks, it looks like a novel that would be right up my alley. So. Well, thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's, um, it's 64 really short stories. And I think each, it's kind of like eight, it's in eight sections and each section is sort of connected and then they, they're all hopefully tied together thematically. Uh, it's not, it's not quite as narratively unified as uh, the two other sort of collections of short stories. But one of the things I love about flash fiction is that it's, it allows you to be both like really kind of traditional literary and minimalist uh, and also kind of weird and experimental. In, in ways that are hard to sustain over a novel or, or even a longer short story. So um, I have a lot of fun with Flash. And, and I hope, yeah, I hope people enjoy um, the book if they choose to if they choose to read it. Gridlock is the one that's coming out uh, in March, I think. Uh, it's Cornerstone Press. They uh, operate uh, out of a small college in Wisconsin, um, so it's, it's a small university press. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. Well, I'll piggyback off of that and just mention, uh, as I mentioned to Brett before we started recording, um, I did read uh, your most recent uh, book, Winter Dance Party, which was really, really good. If anyone out there um, wants to pick that up, I got it directly from the publisher. Uh, it's available really anywhere online, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, it was a great uh, read. A lot of references directly to Pinchon. Um, and yeah, I had, I had a really good time with it. I, I didn't know about, uh, gridlock, so I'm, I'm glad to know about that one. I'll have to keep that on my radar. Yeah. If you're interested in winter dance party, it's uh, alternating current press. Uh, it's a lot about, um, 
well, the, the organizing thematic conceit is the Buddy Holly plane crash the day the music died. Um, although the, the book is kind of a lot about like what it's like to live in a place where a single story <laughs> dominates everybody else's impression of you <laughs> and, and how people, how people sort of respond to that. So again, short stories, um, but yeah, and I really appreciate the read Cody. So thanks. Thanks. Thanks y'all for asking about the, the books and, and letting me share. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, we, we really appreciate it. Uh, well, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Uh, no, I was just going to say, uh, th- my only question is, uh, how dare you um, be, be so helpful without being asked for such a, such a silly little project that this podcast yeah, is. Really? It, it's, it's been great, and we appreciate you coming on both times, and hope we can talk to you again soon. I mean, I think you all are doing awesome work, uh, both for the literary community and just in general. I mean, the discussions are great, uh, so part of it is just, I think... You all are doing a really great job. Um, also, I, I just love this, I just love this book, so uh, I'm glad that glad that people are talking about it in a cool way online. So it's, it's not burdensome at all. It's it's quite a joy to be able to talk about it with other people who who care about it with the same intensity. So thank you all. Yeah, thank you for all the time and the interest. I I I, I think I could speak for everyone and say we we feel quite blessed with your with your presence in the emails and on the show the toy times yeah i'm blessed to have you all as part of my friday routine at this point so <laughs> thank you for thank you for that i mean it sincerely it's it's been great to chat with y'all and it's been great to be part of the project it's it's such a cool podcast i'm, I'm listener for life oh i appreciate that yeah it's like we were saying last week, it's it's weird that we're coming to the end of this thing. You know, it it felt like such a daunting book to take on for our our second book, um, and now I don't really want to be done talking about it. But we do have to move on to something else. So you know, we will. We yeah, I'm sure we'll enjoy what we do next just as much. I am I am even more excited about that than the reveal of the new Bachelor. So, good. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna give the rose to. <laughs> it's got to be Dixon, right? Of course. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, Brett. Again, we, we thank you for your time and for uh, everything that you've done for us throughout this uh, like five months. I think that we've been reading this book. Um, Pretty so crazy. I know I'm really looking forward to when your companion comes out next year. Um, and, uh, so please, you know, listeners, as soon as it is available to order, I would highly suggest that you do. Um, I think it will make a, a great addition to anyone reading this book at any time. Um, so go get a copy as soon as they're available and, um, hopefully we'll be able to stay in touch with you, Brett. And, uh, keep talking pinch on and, and just other books in general. Always, always. I love yeah. I ice so shirt reading it. group. Yeah. 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 I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> thank you all so much. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you all next week to talk about the last four chapters of this book. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.